Welcome to another edition of Mormonland. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce, and I oversee our religion coverage. I'm here again with our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, as you know, Latter-day Saints are told time and time again that having sex is absolutely forbidden before marriage. But after couples say, I do, all that changes immediately. Now sex is not only acceptable, but also encouraged, even exalted. Making that transition isn't always easy for members. That's where Jennifer Finlayson Fife steps in. She's a Chicago area Latter-day Saint and a licensed therapist who specializes in working with LDS couples on sexuality and relationship issues. She joins us today, if you can believe, from Spain to talk about, well, (laughs) Mormons and sex and abuse, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, I'm going to start with a, I'm putting quote marks here, little question. (laughs) How does Mormon theology (laughs) view sex? Well, I actually think we have a pretty exceptional theology, especially for Christian theology, because I think Christians tend, Christian different sects tend to interpret the body as a threat to goodness, that the passions interfere with spirituality and in Latter-day Saint theology, there is a strong recognition of the importance and value of the body, and that one needs the body to become more like our parents in heaven, and that not only does it not interfere with spiritual progression, it's actually uh, essential to it. So this is a remarkable theology, really, uh, if we would only embrace it. <laughs> in, in some respects, it's it's almost the opposite, I guess, from the way some maybe uh, religions or, or believers might look at it. I mean, it, it's ha- like, for instance, how do Mormons view, for instance, she's just Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden story? Yeah, well, I don't think we see it as a sort of fundamental condition or something that all children of God ultimately pay for. Um, so we see it as that we're no longer in the presence of God, but that uh, we aren't paying for Adam's transgression, essentially. Do you think most members understand how, members of the LDS Church understand how their own religion views sexuality? I mean, I, I think that if I say this to people, they recognize it as true, but I don't think it's really the way that that they've internalized that theology. I think that there's strong cultural factors at play in the way that we teach what sexuality is and or should be. And because we have a very uh, demanding principle in the sort of, in the larger cultural ethic of sexuality, because we believe in waiting until marriage to be sexual, to be fully sexual anyway. I think that in our efforts to teach our kids that principle and that belief and that and that standard, we will use a lot of scare tactics and fear-based teaching around sexuality that creates a lot of the problems that I see in my practice in the form of either sexual repression or sexual indulgence. I see the immoderation of our response um, in the in the situations that come into my office. So, what's 
What's good about sex? I mean, healthy sexuality would have what kind of elements? I think healthy, what I would consider healthy is that, that we are integrated with our God-given sexuality. That is to say that one can accept, embrace, and integrate their fundamental sexual nature in being human. And on top of that, to have uh, integrate your sexuality with your morality. So how do you do that? So I think what constitutes healthy sexuality is a, to, the ability to integrate your God-given sexuality, to basically be able to accept and be at peace with your sexual nature as a human being. But in addition to direct that sexuality in ways that are in line with what you believe is right, with what you believe is good. So healthy sexuality is to be accepting of our sexual nature, but to do nothing with your sexuality that would create harm in anyone else or in yourself and even create goodness in your own life and in the life of those that you love. So I've always thought that a a key element of healthy sexuality is mutuality. It's sort of like the Christian ethic of you, you get even as you give, so the more you give, you're also receiving at the same time, and that's something that yes. makes it kind of beautiful and even Christian. Yes. Would you? Would yes. You, would you think mutuality is part of it? Yeah, absolutely, it is. So there's there's kind of what's healthy, kind of irrespective of your relational status, is that you can be at peace with this aspect of being human, and that you aren't doing anything destructive with it. But I think in the context of a loving relationship that, yes, there's a mutuality and a way of sharing yourself with one another. Sometimes we've inherited these ideas that sex is sort of what you give to your future spouse, that your sexuality is your gift to them. And I think that's actually not a good way to think about sexuality. I think of it as that as a fundamental part of being human that in a loving relationship, you share your sexuality and you are able to um, express love and receive love through your sexuality, express desire and receive desire. Um, I think those, that mutuality and that the intimacy of it, this sort of ability to know and be known is a really beautiful aspect of sexuality or potentially beautiful. I think some people understand mutual sexuality to even be a kind of sacrament in the sense of that it's what both LDS people and non-LDS people can describe as some of their most spiritual experiences or transcendent experiences is this kind of uh, profound sharing that one can do through sexuality. So I also have really been curious about what is the pleasure in non mutuality. In other words, why why would someone have sex with an unconscious person? You know what I mean? Like Yeah. What so what are these elements? Okay, a couple of questions along that line. What are the elements of unhealthy sexuality and what kind of pleasure does someone get out of something that's very one-sided? 
Mm-hmm. Well, so unhealthy sexuality is basically going to be to not be able to integrate this sexual nature of ours and or to basically do anything that's destructive through your sexuality, either through the repression of it and the denial of it or the indulgence, overindulgence, or the indulgence at someone else's expense. And so if you're destructive through sexuality, it's very, very destructive. Similar to what I was saying a moment ago, that if you are actually doing, you know, creating something loving and mutual through your sexuality, it can be very, very constructive. So that is to say negative sexuality has a very negative impact on the brain, and positive sexuality has a very positive impact on the brain. Um, and so, so to your second question of why, I mean, I think it's hard for us as human beings sometimes to tolerate what we all instinctively know is that human beings have a taste for evil, a taste for destructiveness, a taste for dominance. And, um, some people, um, come out of situations in which they were exploited or they were humiliated or dominated and they learn cruelty. And some, some human beings learn this and reinforce this more than others from the families that they come out of. And without sounding too crass, I hope I don't, but I think it's hard to understand, but it is in fact true that some people do really get off on knowing that they're doing to somebody what they know precisely that person doesn't want. And whether that's through sexuality or other forms of sadism. And so the idea of mutuality being a given is certainly not my experience. I think mutuality, the capacity for it, is something human beings create through their own development. Their ability to, you know, most of us want to dominate or be dominated. I know that sounds really kind of odd. I mean, most of us are either looking for somebody to take care of us or we're looking to be the one who's looked up to to take care of others because it's a way of actually not being seen or knowable. And I think most of us are afraid of true mutuality, true openness. And so, you know, we, not everybody's sadistic, but I think their human beings easily create hierarchies, easily do cruelty to one another, actually. The opposite is, is, is the remarkable part. I want to turn back to the healthy sexuality for a, a bit. Um, when you were explaining sure. explaining that, and when you were talking about Mormon theology and and teachings and how you, I sensed you you thought Mormons have a potential to get this better than that they do. So, yes. how how could the church, uh, as an institution possibly, or just members, I guess, Im- improve uh, uh, improve Sure. Young and old about how they teach about sexuality. Well, I think that um, we do say some of these things, but we need as a membership to grow up a bit so that we actually believe it <laughs> and that we actually are living it. Okay, but but I think that I think one of the really critical messages is to be more explicit about the embracing of the body and the embracing of sexuality, and the acknowledgement that sexuality is not Satan's pathway, 
this is something we really get wrong. Okay. Many, just to kind of speak to the sort of how we get it wrong for just a second. I think many of us, and especially in these sort of addiction recovery programs and so on, are emphasize this idea that sexuality and desire is Satan's pathway. And that's not a Mormon idea, in my opinion. That is not one of the gospel principles around the body, in my strong opinion. I think we need to teach that sexuality just is. It's a part of being embodied. It's a part of, uh, of it's a gift that's been given to us. And what we do with our sexuality will determine whether or not it's evil or good, whether or not it creates strength in our lives or undermines us. And I think we should teach that it's a powerful way of being in relationship to ourselves and others. And so how we relate to it is very, very important. And that the law of chastity is, is a way of mitigating uh, or sort of minimizing the harm that one could do through it by, by having sexuality be a part of a committed relationship. But what I think we really need to do better is to teach and not be so afraid of the fact that our sexual nature is there from birth and that the feelings of desire or pleasure or arousal are not evil <laughs> and they're not a problem. We shouldn't problematize them. What we need to do is say they're, no they're normal and to direct them in a way that creates more capacity to be in an intimate um, mutual relationship. And so you don't want to talk about it in terms of, you know, do nothing that will arouse any feelings in you, because I think it makes it hard to even live if that you're going to really live by that in 100 <laughs> percent form. Right. Yeah. Uh, but instead, you know, not don't do anything to arouse any feelings, but instead when feelings come along. Right. Uh, consider, you know, how you are in relationship to your sexual feelings and what you create through that, meaning to direct those feelings in a way that is respectful of yourself and your emerging sexuality and respectful of others. And to um, keep your eye on developing the capacity to be at peace with your sexuality and to be able to express it, to use it to express yourself and to love through it someday down the road with someone you have a commitment to. Do, do you think, for lack of a better word, the church... Uh, goes too far, and especially teaching young people uh, about, you know, when, when they approach this topic. I mean, some of the things th that you've mentioned, I, I've, I remember seeing or reading in speeches or sermons, little bits and pieces, but that doesn't seem to be the overall message or theme to young people. Uh, and I'm, I'm, does it go too far? Yeah. Yes. Do I, 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 do I too, think too, too hard yeah, to where... too involved? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I do think we go too far. I think that we are over-regulating masturbation, for example, and overly invasive in what I would consider normal sexual development. You certainly want to give uh, our young people principles and a direction for their sexuality, and you want to help them see um, antisocial or negative messaging that's out in the larger culture. You want to help kids to digest the many messages that are out there, the ones that encourage exploitativeness or even the, that they themselves might be exploited through it. So you want to give that kind of teaching. But 
I think when we're too heavy-handed around normal sexual development, we pathologize something that's not pathological, and then we have the impact of what we call porn addictions and suppression of sexual desire. We have all the things that people are coming to me for. So we had because a, when you haven't, you go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just say we had a, a young millennial woman on Mormonland, and she is in her late twenties. She said that the standards for uh, young people, young Mormons, are getting married later, which means they're uh, expected to be chased longer. And she said, and the, and the standards are no different than the for strength of youth pamphlet they yeah. that they give out to 14 year olds but people in their late 20s have a different understandings about sexuality what do you think about yes. that should there be a a progressive <laughs> like some yeah. progressive standards? well again or? i i think we could get away from the challenge that you're posing peggy by creating more of a principle-based understanding of how you're in relationship to your sexuality and to others so that it's not so much about the do's and don'ts and don't touch here and, and so on and more about what it is that you're doing with this gift of your sexuality, what it is you're creating and that you aren't being self-destructive or destructive to others as you move towards uh, as you grow in your maturity as a person and as you grow towards uh, a commitment towards someone else. So I think being more principle-based allows people to do what we profess to, to believe deeply in is to teach people true principles and let them govern themselves and let them navigate that terrain with wisdom and integrity. When I think we're very authority-based around sexuality, we create a kind of dependency that undermines um, our adult development, actually, to be thoughtful and um, careful in our sexual decision-making as we are trying to create an intimate partnership with someone. Um, so, yeah. So have you had clients who have been sexually abused and what how do you how do you take such a person from from that experience of sex to healthy sexuality what what kinds of things yeah. how do, how do uh, you, yes, how do you move a person like that Sure Well I've definitely definitely had people who've experienced sexual abuse it's way too common very sadly common and you know basically how uh, abuse is generally addressed is that when somebody is in a traumatic experience, it, it generally overloads the brain, essentially. So when someone is having to confront the sadism or cruelty of another person that's going to sexually violate them, the fight or flight response, for lack of a better way of saying it, is the brain is so overwhelmed that it actually kind of becomes, it, it, it interferes with the mind's ability to put the meanings together in the, in the best way, essentially. So what oftentimes people are dealing with, particularly d dependent on what age the trauma happened, how long-standing it was, who was the perpetrator, but uh, 
it's reworking of the meanings that they internalized and being able to go back and kind of revisit and reconsider the the antagonists uh, essentially in those those stories, those memories, because you can help people to see themselves more clearly, see uh, the the perpetrators more clearly and be able to liberate themselves often from a sense of guilt and insufficiency that this creates in the many people. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to work with with people is that oftentimes how people protect themselves is they want to shut, shut down sexuality altogether. It's kind of like, you know, this is the thing that caused me pain and suffering. Therefore, I want nothing to do with it. And I certainly can understand that visceral response. But oftentimes people coming to me understand that they're shutting themselves off from something potentially very good in their lives or a source of strength for them. And they know they're kind of giving too much power over to their abuser in a sense. And so oftentimes the way people make progress is by reclaiming a sense of reclaiming of their sexuality that never belonged to the person who violated them. And almost as a way of, of kind of rebelling against or disempowering their abuser to kind of reclaim this in their lives and move forward with it and create something much more worthy with it, create something that sustains them and gives them more comfort. So, and it's also, you know, sometimes people come out of situations, especially if it happened within a context of a family, they have learned not just about sexual violation, but they've, they've watched a lot of what I would call exploitative relationships, exploitative in, in many forms. And so it's also helping people to track and see the, the meanings or the relational realities that defined much of their early experience and to see it clearly enough to be able to choose differently to be an agent themselves in creating better meanings, better relationships, better sexual relationships. So it's a way of empowering people to actually create something that they can respect in their lives. It sounds like it can be a really, really painful, scary process though, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's hard for the client, it's hard for the therapist too, often to just walk through some of these stories. So we have uh, obviously a, a, a very clear example in Elizabeth Smart, who has talked about mm. being raped daily and, and also at, at the first thinking like, oh, no one will want me now um, because of mm -hmm. church teachings, and then somehow became very resilient and, and was able to separate her own intimate relations. She's now married with children from what happened mm -hmm. to her, how do, is there a way to, again, mm -hmm. back to how the church teaches stuff, to, to help people have resilience in that way? Well, I think, you know, yes, she's remarkable, and, and um, I don't know how much she's spoken about that process of clarity for herself, but I think some of the gospel principles that we have are very much in line with uh, what I'm talking about, which is our capacity to be agents, to be creators, to to actually create a better world um, than maybe the one we were handed 
or the one that we were inducted into. And I think, you know, what I sometimes wish for therapists and church members alike in some ways is more willingness to face the darkness of human behavior because, you know, we believe very much in good and evil, but we, we sometimes shy away from the, the mundaneness of evil, like how much it's a part of our everyday lives and how we interact with one another and the kinds of indecent things we do to the people that we love even. And the reason why I care about us seeing it more explicitly is you can't change what you can't see. You can't really, you know, we talk about sin so much in the frame of sexuality at church that we miss all kinds of way more important <laughs> sinning of just basic human indecency. And I think the more we can see what uh, happened in our own families or what we are doing in our marriages that's hurtful and so on, the more ability we have to, the more agency we have, basically, the more ability we have to repent of things that we don't think are good, don't want to have in our lives, and be agents, actors, and create better. You know, I really think the world's kind of a mess, and I think many of us want this idea that God's, you know, Christ is going to come and clean this all up for us. <laughs> but I tend to, <laughs> tend to think, you know, this is much more on us to clean up our mess, and much more on us to be co-creators with God in creating a more Zion-like reality. And, and the way to do that is through self-confrontation and repentance and change and to really create what it is that you respect and what you desire in your life. That, and, um, yes, so... That, that leads me to a question I was going to ask, going down that dark path, you know, for a while. Uh, you know, that you talked about in facing these. Have you had clients who were abusers? I've not ever had anyone come to me because they're abusing, but, uh, you know, that's not so much my specialty. I, but I have had people who, in the context of dealing with what's going on in their marriages and how they're acting in their marriages, have talked about and acknowledged having violated a sibling when they were, you know, younger and at home when they were minors. So I've had a couple of situations like that. So they discover it, it in was, the process of therapy that that, well, you know, that, that was an abusive yeah, thing uh, or, you know. Um, yes, or maybe that wasn't so much that they discovered, maybe they always knew, but they start uh, addressing it and talking about the reality of, of who they've been and the kinds of things they've done. So... Um, yeah, but it's not as much my specialty. There are people that work entirely with working with sex offenders, and um, there are some some decent programs out there for uh, facilitating or lowering the recidivism rate among sex offenders. So let me ask you about. I mean, obviously, in this Me Too moment, we're becoming, as you can, as you stated, painfully aware of how common, unfortunately, uh, mm -hmm. sexual abuse mm -hmm. is and sexual harassment and those things. Um, but, of course, the church teaches redemption and, and, and is trying to, you know, to save everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. Could the church do—how how can the church react to abusers or, you know, or, or, you know, whether convicted or whatever, and, and how, do, how do they help them or what could they do more to help them, yet still keep people safe? That's—yeah, sure. And that's a 
that's a really tough question because, first of all, I think there's a difference between forgiving and trusting. Um, I think there's, you know, you can forgive or acknowledge that someone has repented of something, but that's different than saying they've earned trustworthiness or should be, uh, you know, back in the presence of children or something, for example. Mm-hmm. I think that the recidivism rate for sex offenders is not is, is pretty high. It's not very hopeful, and, and partly that's about perhaps not great treatment programs yet. There are certainly some out there that have much higher success rates. But I think, you know, what the church probably could do is just to take uh, any admissions very seriously, um, and particularly when children come and talk about it, to take it very, very seriously. I have a couple of situations in my caseload where people went and talked to the bishop, and, you know, in one case it was three sisters all were acknowledging that a brother was sexually violating them, and then he called the parents in. The parents sort of blew up in the office and didn't want to deal with it, and I'm not saying, I, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit tricky when you're a bishop if you haven't been trained in any of these things, but it, the issue basically just didn't get addressed because the parents exploded about it. But this was clearly happening and continued to happen, and um, it's it's unlikely for a young child, and especially a group of siblings, to come and admit to something that's not, in fact, true. And so... I don't have great answers for this because we're asking people that aren't trained in these things to do pretty difficult work. But I think the more we take it seriously and we educate, the the, the better we can do. Um, I, for example, put together a presentation where there was a situation in a ward uh, in my stake where there had been a sex offender in the ward who had uh, violated a couple of the boys. And so the bishop asked me to come and do a presentation on it, and, and we also did a presentation to the kids that helped them to know um, when they were uncomfortable, what they could do, you know, kind of giving them principles, but also teaching the parents what are things to look for to understand or detect sexual abuse in your own child or another person's child. I think we could probably do more to have professionals do more instruction to the the entire ward community because the more informed people are, the more able they are to track when there's a problem. Uh, because oftentimes, well-intentioned people just don't know what to look for, what what to um, what the signs are of distress. Jennifer, any other thoughts on on sexuality uh, and Mormons? Yeah, well, I, On this topic. again, I guess I would just, <laughs> sure, sure. I, I, I think I would basically just conclude with saying we really have a brilliant theology around this, around both, you know, the embracing of the body and eternal progression and this ability to, um, you know, to become one in a sense with a, a spouse. And, you know, we really have the ability to help our membership forge a really beautiful part of being human and to embrace it more completely. And so, you know, I hope we, I hope we will get closer and closer to doing that. Jenner Finlayson Fife, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this topic and appreciate having you with us. 
Thank you for having me. And thanks to Peggy for her coverage. Always a pleasure. And our producer, Sarah Weber. We remind listeners that you can keep up with the latest news within and about the church by subscribing to our free newsletter. Just go to sltrip.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next week on Mormon Land. 